This is MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Lucy Horton. Women are twice as likely to develop anxiety compared to men. But why? Today I'm chatting to scientist Bronwyn Graham at the University of New South Wales. Hello Bronwyn. Hello. Olivia Reams at Cambridge University. Hello. Hello, as well as Ellen Scott, who is a journalist and host on the Metro's Mentally Yours podcast. Hello, Ellen. Hi. Ellen has spoken a lot about her own mental health on different articles on the Metro. So to begin the podcast, we're talking about anxiety and why are women twice as likely to get it. But I think, first of all, we need to talk about what is anxiety. So what is anxiety from a medical standpoint? The scientists, what do you think? How would you define it? Anxiety is a normal human emotion that all of us experience when we're in stressful situations. Basically, it helps us to deal with challenges and to overcome obstacles. So for example, when you're getting ready to take a test at school, when you have a job interview, or even getting ready to go on a date, you might feel a little bit anxious, some heart palpitations. That is normal anxiety. But when it becomes excessive, when it becomes counterproductive and debilitating, that's when you might have an anxiety disorder. So if you're looking at generalized anxiety disorder, which is one of the most common anxiety disorders in the population, people experience this excessive pervasive worry about a number of life circumstances. It um, impairs their ability to form relationships. It makes it harder to fall asleep at night to concentrate on tasks at work. So it just becomes a lot harder to go through your day-to-day life. That is when you might have an anxiety disorder. So the difference is really how pervasive it is and how much it's debilitating you from doing things that you want to do. Exactly. Ellen, you have experienced anxiety yourself. How does it manifest for you? I mean, exactly what you were saying, basically. Just um, kind of constant worrying and feeling anxious when there's nothing wrong. Like there's no reason for there to be stress but I'm just feeling like there's something terrible about to happen. Like even um, say I need to get up at work and put something in the bin. My brain is just like something bad is going to happen. Everyone's going to stare at you. You're going to do something wrong. So it's just physical. Like it feels just chest tight, but also just mentally exhausting. Just constant stream of thoughts of bad things are going to happen and worrying about stuff when... I know on a logical level there's nothing to worry about. And is there quite, you said that it's quite a physical reaction, so in what ways does it kind of impact you in a physical way? So As someone who's never experienced anxiety, what, what I do be? occasionally have panic attacks, and day to day it will make my stomach churn, I feel like nauseous a lot of the time. Um, it can make me just feel really tired, because I think if you're thinking constantly and, you know, sweating and being hot and uncomfortable which is also one of the side effects um it's exhausting like I kind of will get through the day and just feel like oh, I just need to sleep for about 12 hours just to deal with it and today we're going to be talking about why women are twice as likely to experience anxiety so Ellen from your standpoint you said you know you can worry about things which aren't necessarily to do with anything but do you think there's anything about particularly being a woman that makes your anxiety worse I think 100%. Like, one of my biggest worries, and this will sound ridiculous, but any time I was going on a date, I'd be like, well, he's definitely going to be a murderer. And the reality is, like, as a woman, you are 
less safe in the world you are at the risk of sexual assault or violence or just really terrible treatment and just knowing that and seeing stats about all the horrible things that could happen to you out in the world it does add to it it gives you something to worry about and it gives you something concrete to latch onto as a fear um but also i think there's so much pressure women face in general to be perfect um to not express their emotions in certain ways like men are very much encouraged to they can be angry they can be violent and aggressive whereas i think for a lot of women or for me personally um those kind of negative feelings turn inwards instead of being able to like go out and do things and, and express what it. you think um, yeah is that something you found with your research olivia that uh, when you were looking at the environmental impacts, the sexual assault and, and mm -hmm. the wanting to mediate how they're uh, being portrayed in the world, does that impact anxiety? Definitely. So the environment or the places in which uh, we live, they affect our mental health. And uh, in one of our studies at the University of Cambridge, we, uh, which was done on over 18,000 people living in the UK, we showed that women living in deprived areas were over 60% more likely to have anxiety than women living in more affluent areas. But this relationship between deprivation or poverty and anxiety was not found in men. And that's so interesting. It's, um, and what are your reasons for why you think that's the case? There are several reasons. We don't know for sure, but there are possible mechanisms. So women and men tend to perceive the environment differently. For example, you know, as you were saying, neighborhood safety and fear of being assaulted. That's much more of a concern for women than for men. And if they're living in a deprived area, and they're constantly afraid of their neighborhood, you know, they don't trust their neighbors, then they're much less likely to want to engage in leisure activities, like to go for walks, you know, to do physical activity outside. And that impacts your mental health. But also women and men tend to manifest the effects of stress differently. So when women are exposed to stress, they're more likely to internalize it and to develop mental health problems like anxiety. Whereas research shows that when men are exposed to stress, they're more likely to externalize it and to develop substance abuse and, for example, take up alcohol drinking. Also, what is really important, and it, it needs to be mentioned, is that women today are, they have um, a lot of, they have a great burden in the sense that they are taking on multiple roles, you know, compared to before. They are raising children, they, um, a lot of women have jobs today. They are taking care of their parents, of their elderly relatives. So when you are looking at all of these roles that women are taking on, this increases your stress, it increases your anxiety, and even more so if you're living in a deprived area. Research has also shown that women who work and at the same time um, are responsible for taking care of the family, they, um, they tend to have poorer mental health than men who do this because women in general are, you know, they're seen as the caretakers. So they're, they're, they're responsible for a lot of, of the family life. And if they also have work to deal with, then that places a lot of burden on you. It can affect your mental health. Absolutely. And I think even if you don't have children, you're thinking about the fact that one day you might want to have children and how will that impact your career? So there's, there's this added layer of stress that I guess that men don't necessarily have to experience. Yeah. You've both talked a bit about um, 
the fears of sexual assault and I wondered whether with the rise of the Me Too campaign and women coming out and talking about their own experiences of sexual abuse and rape and how you think that might be impacting women's mental health um, in general and also anxiety levels. I think it can really only be a good thing. Um, One of the issues with Uh, anxiety disorders and with mental illness more generally is that there's this incredible stigma associated with coming forward and and saying that you have this condition which we don't see for for most other forms of medical illness and so anything that puts this out into the public sphere and gives women a voice uh, and and almost normalizes this experience which is an unfortunate thing that has to happen um, can only be a good thing. Mm. What are your thoughts, Ellen? I think absolutely a good thing. The only thing sometimes we have to be aware of is that it can be quite triggering to hear about everyone else on such a big scale. And also I think a lot of times women, especially women in media, have this pressure to be responsible for telling those stories and the emotional labour of doing that. Um, Like I know not a lot of female writers have been approached and been like, well, this thing is happening. Will you write about your rape experience? It's like... they don't want to like it's not it shouldn't be all on women to kind of explain sexual assault and have to expose those stories and it's frustrating because yeah to normalize it that's what has to be done but it can be incredibly distressing in the process of doing that and you mentioned there Bronwyn about stigma so I was wondering Ellen have you experienced stigma yeah I think I was really nervous about admitting that I had depression or anxiety or obsessive thoughts. Um, I was worried people would think that I was less able to do my job or they wouldn't, you know, just want to hang out with me. They'd think I was annoying or anything. But um, I'm kind of amazed at how nice the reaction has been, speaking about it publicly. No one has turned around and been like, you're horrible or like, you're ridiculous. They've all been so understanding. Back to these social factors, whether there's something quite current in today's society that you think is impacting anxiety levels and whether there's been a rise in anxiety for women. So recent research has shown that there has been a rise in young women's anxiety levels. And I think there are several factors that can account for this. I don't know about a lot of these factors, but what research has shown is that social media has an effect on people's mental health and there are so many young people on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook today. You know, they're constantly checking their phones. They're checking their phones before going to bed. Some wake up in the middle of the night and they check their phones. That interrupts your sleep. That puts you at greater risk for poor mental health. It makes women compare their bodies with those of others. You know, you're looking at these airbrushed images, which isn't reality. People are comparing their status in life with those of others and everyone is carefully crafting these images these fake images on social media you know and and uh, you're comparing yourself against that and that can induce anxiety in you so I think that is uh, that definitely has an impact on mental health and something which we can we might continue to see increase over time Mm -hmm. what do you think about social media Ellen I think it's definitely a stressor like I love social media in terms of how it lets me connect with other people and in terms of mental health like there are so many other mental health writers who I chat to on Twitter um, and who are running really important campaigns on there but at the same time I definitely find myself comparing myself to other people in terms of Like, this person has that many followers on Twitter, so they must be really successful. Or I can see that this person's doing really cool things and travelling everywhere. 
and I feel like I'm not doing as much. Mm. So definitely that comparison, yeah, it's not a great feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Back to the big question of why we think women are twice as likely to experience anxiety. We've talked a lot about the environmental impacts which might be happening. What about some of the biological reasons behind that? So obviously there's a whole host of social cultural reasons that that women um, are going to be more vulnerable to anxiety uh, uh, compared to men. Um, But we do think that there are some biological factors that make women um, intrinsically more vulnerable to anxiety. And one of the the big clues um, comes when you look at the developmental time course of the prevalence of anxiety disorders. So... um, What do you mean by that? So, yeah, so... um, when you look at children who are prepubertal, there is no difference in um, anxiety rates between boys and girls. It's only when you reach puberty that we see um, that women suddenly take over and become twice as likely to develop anxiety disorders. And you can break that down even further. Um, your pubertal status rather than your age is actually a better predictor of whether there's going to be a gender discrepancy in anxiety disorders. Um, So what we think this means is that what happens during puberty, which of course is that suddenly women experience these dramatic fluctuations in sex hormones that they're going to then experience for the vast uh, proportion of their lives, um, that is, is emerging. And what we subsequently see to that is um, that there are fluctuations in the severity of anxiety disorders across the menstrual cycle. So in general, for most anxiety disorders, symptoms become a little bit better um, during times of high levels of sex hormones. So that's when you're ovulating. Um, But when those sex hormone levels start to drop and become really low, so just prior to and during menstruation, we see this increase in severity of anxiety disorders. So what we think is that sex hormones, um, in particular uh, estradiol and progesterone, may be somewhat protective against anxiety, but because women are, are going through these fluctuations and they have periods of low levels of these hormones, which men tend not to, um, they're more, more vulnerable at critical periods. Estradiol, and that's estrogen. Yeah, so that's the main form of estrogen. So we think of estradiol as a sex hormone that's specific to women. In fact, it's really important to all humans. Um, And so when testosterone reaches the brain, it gets converted to estradiol for men and women. (laughs) Um, But women have these fluctuating levels of it, whilst men's are quite stable. That's right. Men's levels of testosterone are really stable, so they show very gradual reductions in testosterone across the day, but it's nothing compared to what women are experiencing on a monthly basis. So next I want to talk about treatments, Um, and there's lots of different anxiety treatments out there. I don't know whether you can give a bit of an overview of what the different anxiety treatments there are, Bronwyn. So the two main forms of treatment that are are currently the um, first-line treatments for anxiety are um, antidepressants, um, so specifically SSRIs, um, and cognitive behavioural therapy. So um, cognitive behavioural therapy is a psychological form of treatment. It has two main components. So one is the cognitive side of it, which is to target um, your thoughts. So um, as Olivia touched on earlier, people with anxiety disorders tend to um, overestimate both the probability of bad things happening, and if those bad things happen, they overestimate how costly that will be, so how severe the consequences of those bad things will be. And cognitive therapy essentially 
asks a person to reality test those beliefs. Um, so we often take our thoughts as facts, when in fact our thoughts are just thoughts and they may or may not be true. Um, they may or may not be um, different levels of, of truth to, to those thoughts. So um, cognitive therapy gets a person to look at all of the available evidence to support or refute that belief. The other big component of cognitive behavioural therapy is exposure therapy. Um, and, and this also targets those, um, those uh, un unrealistic thoughts. Um, but it does so in a much more direct way. So essentially what it asks the person to do is to confront the most um, fear-eliciting situation that is the, the source of their anxiety um, and to do so in a safe and, and gradual way so you're not sort of thrown into the deep end. You, you start off um, with something that's slightly less challenging and then, and then work your way up to the most challenging scenario. Um, and essentially what the person learns through this is that the bad thing is very often not likely to happen and that when it does or in you know in in the rare cases that it does you actually cope with it a lot better than you gave yourself initial credit for. Ellen is is this a kind of therapy that you've been through what what treatments have you had? I have had CBT but only a few sessions and honestly I didn't find it that helpful and I think the reason that is is because um it was online so it's just over a webcam it was very easy for me to not be 100% honest with things um, and also it was only a few sessions we only really covered social anxiety in those sessions whereas my major concern is more the obsessive thoughts and um, worrying about burning down the house and stuff like that um, so I didn't feel like you know six sessions which is what you would get on the NHS was enough to cover everything um, I am also on antidepressants which definitely I feel like they've made a big difference and I'm now doing private therapy as well. There are lots of different approaches. Um, and uh, I guess there are guidelines about what sort of approaches you should attempt first. So you, you try the ones with the most evidence behind them. Um, but where those approaches fail, because they do fail for 50% of people, um, you do need to attempt other, other things. So, you know, in the end, it's sort of what, what works best for you. Well, 50% of people don't respond, that's very high. I did yeah, not know Yeah, so, so either they, they don't respond or, or they respond suboptimally or they show relapse eventually. What are some of the causes about why this might be the case? One of the things that we've been looking at is sex hormones. So we've been looking at how sex hormones might influence how you respond to treatment. Um, so we've been modelling the, the two different um, mechanisms of CBT in the lab. Um, in both healthy women and women with anxiety disorders. And, and what we've been finding is that when women go through these techniques, when they have higher levels of estrogen, um, they respond better and they show less subsequent relapse of symptoms than if they go through these techniques when, um, or they learn about these techniques when they have lower levels of estrogen. And we've just translated this into the clinic. So we've just completed a, a clinical trial of 90 women. Um, we focused on spider phobia for this particular study because um, unlike other disorders, spider phobia is unique in that you can treat it very successfully in a single day. And so we wanted to time that treatment to match different levels of, of estrogen according to women's menstrual cycles. So just to be clear, though, what you were talking about earlier was that the fluctuations in women's uh, estrogen or estradiol levels 
happen around the menstrual cycle. So your research is focusing on at what points in the menstrual cycle would this phobia treatment work the best? Is that, that right? That's exactly right. Um, and we also included a group of women on the hormonal contraceptive pill, which chronically suppresses estrogen levels. Um, so what we found was that there was a relationship between your levels of estrogen and how well you responded to treatment. So women who underwent the treatment when they had the highest levels of estrogen um, responded best. They, they uh, went through the treatment most rapidly, so they showed the most improvement um, in the shortest amount of time. And then when we followed them up three months later, they showed substantially less relapse relative to women who went through the treatment um, when they had low levels of estrogen. And the women who were most affected were the women on the hormonal contraceptive pill. Um, so they showed the most amount of relapse 12 weeks later, and they also showed the least efficient treatment response in the sense that it took them much longer to get to the same point, to get to that same improvement of symptoms um, as the women with, with high levels of estrogen. So you think the pill might be affecting how women are responding to treatment? Yeah, we think so. Um, and, and we think that this is through its effects on the, the body's ability to naturally produce estrogen. So does this mean that uh, women who are all on the pill are more likely to experience anxiety or is it to do with the anxiety treatment? So um, what we were looking at was treatment response, which is quite different to how likely are you to develop anxiety in the first place. But there is a separate body of literature looking at the influence of the pill on mental illness. Most of this work has focused on depression um, and what it has shown is that there is evidence for a link between um, risk for depression um, and being on the pill. Not much research has looked at anxiety, um, so that's something that we need to look at next because obviously anxiety and depression are highly comorbid. What are some of the other areas of research you think we need to develop more to be able to get your findings into something more tangible for patients? So I think we need to um, see whether or not these findings generalise to other forms of anxiety disorders. Um, as Ellen was talking, you're not going to receive treatment in a single session most of the time. Um, most anxiety disorders are a lot more complex than simple phobias, which is, which is what we were looking at. Having said that, the main principles underlying treatment are the same. So we suspect that our findings should generalise to those other disorders. Um, but we need to test it. What are some of the main ways that you think your research, looking at this changing times of, of when anxiety treatments are most effective in women, how could that impact someone like Ellen who's yeah. facing anxiety? I, I think there's two main ways. One is that um, it could increase the efficiency of treatment. So for most cases, you need at least 12 sessions of CBT for it to be effective. That's obviously... Um, time-consuming on behalf of, of the person receiving the treatment. It's also extremely costly. Um, different countries have, have different um, sort of forms of reimbursement for treatment, but for instance in Australia to see um, a private psychologist, you're looking at a cost of around $200 per session and you'll receive a reimbursement of about $100 for that. So if you have a minimum of 12 sessions, that's a substantial out-of-pocket cost. Firstly, if we can time treatment so that we're administering it when it's likely to be most efficient, um, there's a significant cost savings there. 
Um, but the second thing is we know that even when people go through successful treatment, they're, they've got about a 50% chance of um, showing uh, you know, either suboptimal response or, um, or relapsing. So if we can administer treatment at the time that it's likely to be most successful, or conversely, we could use um, estrogen as, um, say, a pharmacological adjunct to boost the effects of CBT. Put it in a pill. Exactly. We, um, we could improve outcomes in that way. So it might be a case of taking women off the pill for maybe 10 weeks while they have their anxiety treatments or finding out in their menstrual cycle when's the, the highest time of oestrogen. That's right. So those are the, the avenues that we'll be exploring in the future. If oestrogen is so kind of important to how women are responding to treatments, does that mean that women and men respond to treatments quite differently? Unfortunately, there is very, very little data out there that asks that question, which is ridiculous because in, um, in all treatment trials, we have a mix of, of men and women. But um, very often those studies are really poorly powered to, to test whether or not women and men are responding differently. And the other thing is that very often people aren't followed up after treatment ends. Um, or they're only followed up, say, a month later. Um, so we just don't know. There's, there's a little bit of work looking at antidepressants, and it's certainly the case that men and women respond differently to different formulations of antidepressants. So there's like nine different SSRIs, and we know that women respond better to some SSRIs compared to men. We don't know why. Um, so there's definitely hints at at um, differences in, in treatment response. I think there is also some evidence for panic disorder uh, that women are more likely to show relapse after successful um, psychological treatment for panic disorder. But again, we, we just don't know why. Which is really what you're trying to yeah. find out, as well as you, I guess. What do you think some of the, the big questions we still need to answer about anxiety are? I think we need, so, you know, actually what you just mentioned now that there's not a lot of research on anxiety. Um, if you look at other illnesses like depression, there's so much more research done on depression. Why what, do you think that is? I'm not really sure, to be honest, as to why depression um, was sort of, uh, you know, there was so much more done on this prior to anxiety. But what I can say is that um, Given the state of knowledge, you know, on mental health, I think we need so much more research done on anxiety, the causes of anxiety disorders, um, and also on treatments for anxiety. Um, and, you know, because a lot of the treatments that we have, as it's been already discussed, they uh, sometimes they don't work, uh, patients relapse, or some people don't experience any symptom improvement. So I think we need to refine those treatments. Helen, what are some of the big questions you'd like answered? I would definitely want to know more about how hormones affect it, honestly, because every moment of my treatment, I've never been asked about, are you on the pill? Or I had my hormones checked for that. I had them checked because um, people thought I had polycystic ovary syndrome. But if it weren't for that, then I would never even considered hormones impact. Um, yeah, I think it's very difficult to treat it if we don't know all the possible things that could be causing it or affecting it in some way. And realizing what you're saying about it making treatment less effective, that's really scary that, you know, I didn't know that. And I think a lot of doctors wouldn't know that. And no one would even think to say like, 
if you're on the pill, maybe now isn't the right time for treatment or maybe we should look at coming off it. And what I would just like to add really quickly is that um, also culture in a way seems to um, increase your risk for anxiety. So if you if you compare the anxiety rates of the Western world to, you know, non-Western countries, anxiety in places like North America or the UK, it's much higher. And um, if you're looking at people that are immigrating to those regions, immigrating to North America, for example, um, the anxiety rates of immigrant populations are lower, but the longer that they live in that country, the more likely um, are their anxiety levels to match those of the people, you know, um, living in the country that they've moved e exactly, to. Exactly, exactly. And what are some of your hypotheses as why that might be the case? Again, we don't know. We need more research into this. Um, there's a lot that isn't known about anxiety right now. There's um, a lot more research that is starting to come out on it. A bit of an issue is the instruments that we're using to measure anxiety. A lot of these uh, tools, these questionnaires, you know, they were developed for use on Western populations. So, uh, and the anxiety that might be experienced in non-Western parts of the world, it could be slightly different than that experienced in Western contexts. So we might need to adapt these instruments, you know, that we're using. So once, once we've got rigorous tools that we can use to measure anxiety in all parts of the world, then we, we are in a position to say, okay, what, what could some of these factors be that are driving these differences in the rates? Can I just um, jump in there? With, yeah. So Olivia made the point that a lot of the, the measures that we use to, um, to examine anxiety are culturally biased. They're also biased to sex. So there is an argument that the way that we currently diagnose anxiety um, is anxiety in the form of how women express it. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that men may be less vulnerable in, in uh, inverted commas is that anxiety is expressed in men in a different way that we just don't currently recognise. Um, so it may not be a true gender discrepancy. It may just be that we're biased in the way that we're, that we're viewing how anxiety is expressed. It's really interesting. Is that a kind of historical uh, reflection of how anxiety came about as being a diagnosis? Absolutely, because women are more likely to come, to come forward and acknowledge that they do have anxiety compared to men. And so the way that our current diagnostic systems have developed has been on the basis of, of patient reports. Now, if more women are coming forward, then that's how you define anxiety. But I would say that even if the true prevalence of anxiety is absolutely identical between men and women, what we currently see in the literature that is undeniable is that there is a sex bias in the research on these topics and it's in the direction of men. So all of our animal models um, that are so informative as to the biological basis of anxiety and how we might modify those um, those uh, characteristics through treatments are conducted in male rats. Um, so even if both men and women experience anxiety at similar rates, it's possible that men and women are responding to these treatments differently and we absolutely need to take that into account when we research um, these, these treatments. Because to go back to the question you asked earlier about what 
what we need to, to understand to change anxiety. We need to know why people are not responding to these treatments because when they work, they work really, really well. But the focus on research at the moment is what works. It's not what doesn't and why doesn't it work. And if we can answer those questions, then we can optimise treatments for everyone based on their individual characteristics. I wonder, is that bias in research being focused on men? Is that across the board? Yes, medical it's, it's, um, it's particularly bad in neuroscience, which often covers mental illness. So for every um, female um, animal model, there's 5.5 male animal models. And that's even the case for, for um, disorders that are far more prevalent in women. So things like multiple sclerosis, um, which is four times more common in women there's more male models. And that's because? There is a perception that males are easier to work with. Because? That is, that is unfounded, because of um, that pesky menstrual cycle, <laughs> which we know, we, we know is having an impact, right? So it's kind, of, um, it's kind of funny because scientists are acknowledging that this menstrual cycle is affecting our results. So rather than saying, let's look at it, they're saying, let's ignore it. Do you think we could ever prevent anxiety? Future, future looking? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, I would love to just jump in and say, yes, of course. But as Olivia spoke about before, anxiety is normal. We don't want to get rid of anxiety because it serves a really important purpose. It's what keeps us safe and it's a very finely tuned system that's evolved over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years so no we don't want to get rid but of anxiety. anxiety disorder we do want to stop it tipping into the the level of the disorder um, and then that's a very fine fine tipping point in many instances so um, mm. yeah Ellen, <laughs> Ellen can you see yourself ever having a life that's that's free of anxiety in the anxiety disorder terms I don't know if I'll ever be like a hundred percent better there'll never be an anxious thought that ever crossed my mind and I don't think um that's like a realistic target I think it's more about learning how to handle them when they come up and not letting those thoughts spiral or get to the point where they're preventing me from doing stuff but I don't I can't picture them just being gone I think that there'll always be fears and worries. It's just about kind of how you handle them or how you stop them from progressing. And what would you say to someone uh, who's listening to this podcast who might be experiencing anxiety? What would you say um, to them? I would say, first of all, talk about it because you, when you're struggling with anxiety, you think you're going absolutely mad and you think everyone is normal. But if you actually talk to people, you realise like it's extremely common what you're feeling and people have probably had more anxious thoughts and you'll be able to relate to people and they'll give you advice that can help. Also realise that it passes and it's not constant. I think when you're in the middle of like a really bad anxiety spiral, it feels like everything's over and you can't escape from it, but it does pass. And hopefully if you get treatment, it will help it pass more quickly and you'll be more able to get through it. Um, and also just know that treatment can help. Because I think if you feel hopeless and if you're worried that nothing's going to work, you're not going to try to get help. But it does, it does make a huge difference. 
I think that's a brilliant point to end on. Thank you all so, so much for joining me today. If you have been affected by anything spoken about this podcast and you'd like to speak about your mental health to someone, you can call the Samaritans on 116 123. Thank you very much.